0: to listen to a sermon
1: from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Good
0: evening
1: all, I'm Rachel, we're going to read John 4 chapter 1 to 26 you can find that in the pamphlet you got on the way in now jesus learned that the pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than john although in fact it was not jesus who baptized but his disciples so he left judea and went back once more to galilee The woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he.
0: Well, Good evening again. That passage uh, that was read, if you didn't notice, is printed in your sheets and there's a sermon outline there. How about I pray again, Lord, um, show us our, our thirst that you might also show us Christ. Amen. Uh, have you ever been really thirsty? Uh, where you feel dry and your throat is telling you that this is, this is not right, that we need water here. And have you then been able to drink? I remember one uh, hike I did in the Kosciuszko National Park. I remember searching for water across a place called the Rolling Ground. Anybody been there? Great, great place. Um, It was much drier than we'd expected. It's very high, and we'd been sparing our water, and we were thirsty, but then we found a little stream bubbling out from under the heather. And uh, at that height, it's often fairly safe to drink. And so we drank, and it was cold and clear and just wonderful to quench our thirst. Well, the passage we're looking at this evening revolves around thirst. The action begins when Jesus, tired and hot in the middle of the day in a pretty rough part of the world, after a long journey, asks a woman for a drink of water. Thirst has deeper meanings in this passage as well. It's an image for other longings and hopes. The woman Jesus talks to has lived a life of constant effort, constant searching, both as she's kept going for water from this well, possibly a long journey, and as time after time she has married and been disappointed. She is Thirsty for truth as well, it turns out. She asks Jesus a really good question about worship. This whole passage just kind of hums with thirst, with longings, with desires looking for satisfaction. Do you resonate with the idea of being thirsty? Many of us will have come to church today burdened with concerns and disappointments, maybe about the referendum, maybe not, probably about the horror in the Middle East. Many of us also live with nagging weights and worries and longings about, maybe about big things like climate change or more personal things like relationships, family. Aren't we thirsty people in all sorts of ways? Well, Jesus says that he can satisfy. If you knew the gift of God, he says to this woman, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks the water I give, Jesus says, will never thirst. And lest we think that that offer can't be relevant in our day with all the complex real worries we face, let's also notice that Jesus makes this promise very much in the midst of the real world. It's a world that feels very contemporary actually. Did you notice that the drama in the story, the tension, arises from tension between two ethnic groups in Palestine. The Jews and the Samaritans, two, people, two peoples with a long history of conflict and common occupation of the land. This story is set in a geography that is fraught with history in a way that's very familiar. There's also something uncomfortably familiar in the sense of risk that accompanies Jesus being alone with this woman in a remote place. It reminds us of contemporary concerns about misconduct and sexual impropriety. Also, the woman at the center of this story is just a very down-to-earth person. She asks Jesus about not having digging equipment. She's interested in very practical, real things, and it's because she has lived a tough life, and she knows what it is to be disappointed. This is a story about the real world, the world that we know, with its thirsts and Jesus says he has water so let's try and take this story in I'm just going to walk us through this story in three stages pausing uh, at each point to try and draw out a few implications so let's begin then with the chance encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman it happens because Jesus and his disciples leave Judea which is the southern territory of the Jews around Jerusalem, and they journeyed back to Galilee. And to do this, the shortest route took them through Samaria. There's a kind of map, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north had to go through Samaria. Ju- Samaria divided the Jewish territories of Galilee and Judea rather like the way Gaza and the West Bank are divided by Israel, though the role of the Jews is reversed. Now, the people of Samaria were called the Samaritans, Okay, but who were they? Well, it's a long story, but basically the Samaritans were the people who had occupied the northern part of Israel after it was resettled in the 8th and 7th centuries BC. I mean, just Wikipedia it if you're interested, you know. But they were the descendants of Jews and foreign settlers and had developed their own religion based on the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, but no more. Um, as we will see, is important later in the story, their worship was focused on a, a place called Mount Gerizim. You probably can't read it, but it's there, that triangle is Mount, where Mount Gerizim is, rather than the Jerusalem temple. But most importantly, there was a long history of conflict and bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. Well, Jesus' journey takes him through Samaria to uh, a place that might be there, called Sichar. They think it's there because archaeologists think they know where this well is that's mentioned. Jacob's well that the patriarch Jacob had dug and given to Joseph that's mentioned in Genesis 48. It's probably there. You can Google that as well if you want. John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus was tired from the journey. It's a long journey. And he sat down by the well about noon. He's hot and tired and thirsty. Now, do notice, by the way, that Jesus had these ordinary human experiences. The Gospels don't ever pretend that Jesus is kind of a superman who's untouched by normal human stuff. Actually, John, just in passing here, re- records that Jesus is basically a bit grumpy from the journey. You know, it's very normal stuff. And, and that's because Christians have always believed that Jesus is fully and truly and really human. He lives a life that's really our life, Uh, just in case you were kind of tempted to think of him as a kind of superman. But anyway, Jesus is sitting there, he's hot, he's tired, and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Now, Jesus is alone because the disciples have gone to get food. I get the sense that sometimes Jesus liked to be left alone, Uh, but maybe that's just the introvert in me projecting but I do think, you know, that he seems to kind of end up on his own anyway. He's on his own. This, this woman comes along. Now, I imagine this woman expected Jesus to politely ignore her, but instead he asks her for a drink. And she's really shocked. Uh, and her response shows at verse 9, it's there in your outlines, she says, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And in case we don't get it, John makes it clear, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, the fact that this woman draws attention to this, um, that she brings the surprise of this request out into the open, it makes it much more awkward. If she'd just given him a drink and said nothing, nobody would have noticed, but she's drawn attention to it, and so now, now it's a thing. Now, I reckon at this point, Jesus could easily have pulled back. He could simply have just walked away, turned the other, just gone silent. Some people probably would have said that actually was the wise thing to do. But he doesn't. He engages. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's a real engagement. He wants a conversation. right? If he just wanted a drink, he could have said, Oh, yeah, come on, just give me a drink. you know. But he doesn't. He says something designed to create a conversation. Now, before we move on to the conversation that follows, I, I, I want to pause on this point, on the simple fact that Jesus does engage with this woman. He didn't have to. And in some ways, it was risky for him to, to do so. This woman was not a socially respected person probably not even amongst the Samaritans, and for a Jewish rabbi, this was really sticky territory. As we'll see next week, when the disciples come back, they are genuinely shocked that he is in this conversation. But Jesus does engage with her. He sees her. He talks to her. He takes her seriously. This willingness to engage with her is actually reflected in the overall shape of John's Gospel. I think this encounter is one of, if not the, longest single interactions with an individual in John's Gospel. And actually, this is part of a pattern. All the longest interactions with individuals in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, they're all with outsiders. In Mark, the longest stories are with a madman, who lives in a, among tombs in Gentile territory, surrounded by pigs, he's the ultimate outsider, and with a woman who has a dangerous bleeding condition. In Luke, the longest interaction is, I think, with a prostitute. In John, the other contenders are a blind man and a paralyzed man. And you know why that is? It's because Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the Gospels point us to how he lived this out by giving a lot of space, a lot of words to his encounters with people who were not acceptable, who might be considered an embarrassment. I want us to notice this because it's both good news and a challenge. It's good news... Because it means Jesus is not embarrassed by us. If we have made a bit of a wreck of our lives, like this woman has. Or if we are just broken and messy, like a lot of people are. Or if we don't look very good in the world's eyes, if we are kind of embarrassing. Jesus is not ashamed of us. In fact, he might be especially interested in us. It's good news, but it's a challenge too. The challenge is, are we like Jesus at this point? Are we interested in those who are on the outside, those who aren't respectable and frankly aren't going to be? When people come into church, do we show a warmer welcome to those who look like us, who sound and smell like us? Well, coming back to the story, Jesus' mention of living water. He said he can give living water. It confuses the woman. Sir, she says in verse 11, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, that, this question of, of the woman, it, it makes more sense when we realize that the phrase living water probably could have been taken just like our phrase fresh water or running water. The woman may have thought Jesus was offering fresh water, better water, and so she's, frank, she's frankly skeptical. Are you going to do better than Jacob and all the generations that have searched for water here after him? You're going to do better? You don't even have a shovel you know, or a bucket. What are you going to do here? She's very practical, this person. But Jesus is beginning to offer her something more. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus says he can give water that will quench thirst forever because it, it will somehow become generative of life. It will become like a spring inside a person giving life forever. This is a, a profound image. To a close reader of the Old Testament, it conjures up all sorts of echoes of Israel's prophets, but it's also just a beautiful image in itself, which is good because this woman probably wouldn't have known any of the prophets. Won't you feel the beauty of this image of a water that comes into you, into your heart, and refreshes itself and fills you up with eternal life? Wouldn't you love to be like the heart of your being, to have a spring of life-giving water? What a wonderful what a wonderful thought. At this point, the woman doesn't quite understand, but she also doesn't dismiss it. Verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I think this response is so interesting. So interesting. Yes, she doesn't quite understand, but she senses that there is something here she wants. And so she asks for it. Would you have done that? Would I, I wonder? What is it that opens her to Jesus' words that makes her interested I reckon part of the answer is that this woman is not too proud to admit that she she would like this. Or too proud to know that she does long for things to be different. And she isn't proud because her life is hard. And it has been hard. She has to keep coming to get water, maybe a long way. And every time, it's like a little metaphor for her life in which she has kept trying and kept being disappointed. That's actually what Jesus now brings into the open. Uh, His response to her request to give the water, it's not what she expects. Verse 16, Jesus says, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. When the woman says, I have no husband, it's possible that she was trying to evade Jesus' request. Trying to avoid being open about the reality of her situation, and frankly, who could blame her? But it also is a true statement, and And so can be taken as a kind of confession, a sad confession. And Jesus brings this into the open. Not into public. It's only the two of them there. It's still private. But he brings it into the space between the two of them. So they know about it. Notice the way Jesus treats this woman, won't you? It's a mix of gentleness and truthfulness. The prologue of John's gospel says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. I think that's what we see here. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus is not harsh with her. He doesn't hold this over her and rub, rub it in. There is gentle grace in this, but also truth. Jesus knows that whatever the causes, she needs not to evade the truth of her life. And this is what it's like to be with Jesus, to know Jesus and to be known by him. It's what it's like for us as well. And we need to know what to expect. Friends, Jesus will be gentle with you. He is full of grace. In Isaiah's beautiful words, he tends his flock like a shepherd and gathers the lambs in his arms. He, he holds them close to his, his breast and gently leads those that are with young. But he also asks for truth, and he does not let us get away with pretending about things. Grace and truth, that's how it is with Jesus. Truth is both the price of grace and what grace frees us for. And if we will have Jesus, we must be open with him. But he is also the one with whom it is finally safe to be open. Are there ways in which you have been holding things back from him? You're only holding yourself back from grace, you know. Well, coming back once again to the story, Jesus' extraordinary insight into her life. It's it's kind of it's a miracle to her. How can he possibly know this? It prompts the woman to ask Jesus a question. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, I reckon this is a genuine question, coming from a genuine desire to know the truth. This woman is not a a deeply kind of certain, She's not deeply certain of her religious convictions and knows that her way is right and the way of the Jews is wrong. No, she's uncertain. She wants to know. Now, Jesus' answer to her is fascinating. He tells her that there is a difference. There is a difference between the Jews and the Samaritans, but also that something is happening that means this difference doesn't matter as much anymore. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. There's no pretending all faiths are equal, says Jesus. The Jews have the knowledge of God in a way that the Samaritans don't. But a time is coming, says Jesus. And in fact, this time has now come when a new worship will appear that is finally perfect, finally in keeping with the reality of who God is. A door has been opened to worshipping the God who is spirit, in spirit and in truth. And the Father, Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshippers. He wants worshippers. He's seeking them. And Jesus says, he's seeking them in people like you. And you Samaritans, you can be part of this. There is an invitation before you, Jesus is saying, to be one of the true worshippers to the fulfilment of worship. Now that's a profound thing to dwell on, Um, but before we do, I do just want to highlight something. Did you notice that the way Jesus explains explains things here emphasises the dignity of the Jewish people? Salvation is from the Jews. That is a sentence never to be forgotten. It was edited out by the Nazis as it has been by anti-Semites in all ages. Christians have played a terrible part in this history at times, and that should never have been. Because those of us whose faith is in Jesus will never not be followers of a Jew, a Jewish Messiah. And we will never not be grafted in, to use one of the Apostle Paul's images, to a Jewish tree. Salvation is from the Jews. I believe that should give Christians a special affection and concern for the Jewish people. That does not mean we're called to agree with them always or ask no questions any more than we're called to that with one another. But we also cannot treat them simply as we treat anyone else. They must retain a special affection. Because from them came the Messiah. But coming back to what Jesus offers this Samaritan woman, this promise of true worship, do you realize that that what Jesus offers her, he offers us? The freedom to worship God as he should be worshipped in a way that is fitting with who he is. How do you react to this offer of being a true worshipper? Some people are a bit turned off by the idea of worship. Maybe it conjures up images that are a bit distasteful for you, maybe of mega churches or of old-fashioned religion or something. I get that, but I also think this is a profound offer that we shouldn't just skate over. Think first about what it means to worship. Worship, at, at rock bottom, worship is about giving your heart's assent to something good. And we do that kind of thing all the time. Think about how good it feels to admire something you find really beautiful, like a beautiful artwork, or the joy it feels to listen to a wonderful piece of music. Or think about how right and good it feels to see somebody you admire recognized and honored. Doesn't that feel great? Or think just about the feeling of being carried away in a huge crowd, cheering at a concert. Those are glimpses of, of worship. Now try to imagine what it might mean to worship God perfectly. To have the, as the object of our worship, something, someone infinitely worthy. Infinitely worth praising and adoring without one shred of reservation about it. To be utterly consumed along with the whole earth in one who perfectly deserves all praise. And I say along with the whole earth because the Bible's vision of true worship is that when God is truly worshipped, everything finally will be in its right place. And so, to offer true worship is to find the fulfillment of all our longings for justice, for peace. The failures, the, 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 the origin of all evils in the world, the Bible says, arises from a failure at the beginning to worship God. And so the restoration of true worship means the healing of the earth. That is what Jesus is setting before us here. And imagine finally what it would be like for you to be able to worship like that. For that joy and praise not to be ruined, not to be sullied or stained by any doubt or lack of faith or degraded by our sins and failures to be able to, wash, to offer a worship that is in some sense worthy of God, clean and clear and right and true. That's what Jesus offers. That is, that is actually the living water that he, speak, that he speaks of here. The water that is the gift of the Holy Spirit drawing people into the true worship of God in spirit and in truth, welling up to eternal life, Jesus says, you can be part of that. But how? How can Jesus offer that? Because the fact is, we're nowhere near that, right? We are confused. We are messed up. We are so far from being those perfect worshippers, and the world is so far off that we are so unfit to stand in God's presence. How on earth can Jesus put that within reach? I reckon that is kind of what is in this woman's mind at the end of our passage. Look in your outlines, if you want, how she responds to what Jesus says. Jesus makes this big speech, and she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I think this is a kind of shrug of the shoulders. Well, maybe, she says. That's a great speech. But I can't see how any of that can have anything to do with me. I can't see how that's possible. When the Messiah comes, maybe he'll sort it all out. She's pulling back here, I think. Jesus' words seem too unreal, too impossible, too far off. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is now really close. Look at that last verse. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am. I am he. Jesus is the Messiah who brings all of those hopes into now this promise is no longer far off wishful thinking it's it's a real offer. Jesus has brought these hopes within reach that's where we leave the story for today but can we just notice that we still don't know how? <laughs> okay he's the Messiah, but how is he going to do it? how can Jesus make this offer how can Jesus make people like this woman people like us how can he make us be part of this do you know right at the end of his gospel john tells us the answer or he hints at it as jesus hangs on the cross in the last moments of his life john tells us this later knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. It's only in John's gospel this bit. And I think it's because John wants us to hear an echo of this conversation with the Samaritan woman. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty, Jesus had said. But now Jesus himself says, I thirst. And that shows us how he did it, you see. It shows us how Jesus made this offer and opened the door to us becoming true worshippers. He took our need and our unworthiness into himself. He took upon himself all our sin and brokenness and failure and doubt. All the things that make us unfit to be God's true worshippers, and he dealt with it. He consumed it on the cross. Jesus came to make us an incredible offer, friends, to invite us to receive the life of God like a spring of water within us and become those who join in creation's perfect praise. He's not looking for perfect people to fulfill this role. He's looking for people like this Samaritan woman, people who know their need, who know they are thirsty. He's looking for people like me and you. And he invites us to be a part of it simply by his free, beautiful grace. He laid down his life so that we could share in it. Won't you take up the offer, friends? Perhaps as we share the Lord's Supper in a moment, Let Jesus finally, truly begin to quench your thirst. And won't you rejoice to have received this offer and let this purpose of being true worshippers shape your life from now on more and more and more. Amen.